This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's up, you guys? Welcome to the May 30th edition of the Rotor World Fantasy Basketball Podcast. I'm Mike Gallagher. Game 7, baby! I'm really excited about that. And with me to talk about that, Game 6, and a lot of other stuff is Ethan Norup. What's up, man? Hey, we either get Kevin Durant versus LeBron or Stephen Curry versus LeBron, so I think we're going to be all right. Or Clay Thompson versus LeBron. Hey, now, you know, 11 threes in game six. I'm excited to see what he has for game seven. For sure. He was pretty quiet in the fourth quarter up until game six. He actually only had 11 points game one, games one through five, and then he lit it up, man. And I mean, that is legendary stuff, what he did. I mean, I, I my throat was sore yesterday because I was yelling at my TV so much. It's crazy. I mean, I mean, you have to think that on any other team that he gets top superstar billing, right? And that's I'm not trying to take anything away from Stephen Curry. Obviously, back-to-back MVPs, first unanimous one in league history. But Klay Thompson, man, he just does not get enough credit for how good he is. Yeah, I mean, that quarter and the third quarter against Sacramento last season was, I mean, he has probably the, the two most electric quarters that I can remember, man. I mean... I think LeBron's had a couple. Obviously, Curry's overtime against Portland was a big one, but Clay, Clay is Clay, something, man. You know, I think I wrote about it on a Saturday night leading into Sunday. But you know, when Steph Curry can flirt with a triple double in what was an elimination game for Golden State, look like the Steph Curry that we got used to seeing before these playoff injuries, and he takes second billing to Clay Thompson. I think that tells you all you need to know about that performance. Yeah, definitely. So, um, what do you think about? Okay, so I thought the the big takeaway, in my opinion, was the return of the death lineup. This lineup got smashed on pretty much game one through five. I think. Games one through uh, game three and four, they were like minus ninety eight net rating, but they were amazing in game six. They played eleven minutes together. They had a 50, 55 positive net rating. I mean that was really the key. And I mean Iguodala, I thought was another unsung hero for his defense was incredible late. I'm pretty sure that's what Steve Kerr might have even used that exact phrase, unsung hero. I mean, it's pretty rare that a guy wins NBA Finals MVP and he still goes somewhat unnoticed. But ever since Iguodala came to Golden State as a free agent, you know, he's been willing to play any role this team has asked of him, has never complained about anything when it comes to playing time involvement or anything like that. You know, he does a lot of stuff that doesn't show up in the box score and and his defense on Durant unless you're looking at the advanced numbers, but just a basic box score is not going to tell you how valuable he was in that game six. Do you think he starts game game seven tonight? Uh, I think Steve Kerr has to at least give it some thought, but I would be surprised if, if Kerr and his coaching staff mess with the routine. I mean, you can certainly justify him over Harrison Barnes at this point in the starting five, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like with your season on the line, do you really want to make that change? Of course, on the opposite end of that, you know, Andre did start uh, the second half of game six. So, you know, they're not going to hesitate if they see something that's working or not working. But I'd be surprised. And I, I think Harrison Barnes gets the start. It is his birthday after all. Yeah, right. That would be pretty cold. Pretty cold birthday present. No hey, doubt. Happy birthday. You're coming off the bench. <laughs> yeah. but, and he's has a, he has a very, very, very big summer coming up. We'll talk about that soon. 
I yeah, I think I think I would probably go Harry B to start, and then I would bring Iguodala to start third quarter again. I thought that was a a big big long overdue adjustment. I mean Iguodala, his defense was like as great as Clay was on offense. That's pretty great how Iguodala was on defense. He was amazing. Like what uh, Westbrook and Durant had, I think what six turnovers in the final six minutes or something, and most of them because of Iguodala. It was crazy. <clears throat> you know, he's got athleticism, he's got strength, and he's got the versatility to, de- to defend multiple positions. And when you have that type of defender on the floor, especially with how good Clay is on defense, too, something that he, again, does not get enough credit for given his offensive prowess. And I think you've got two plus-plus defenders out there, and you can do some things that you wouldn't be able to do if Harrison Barnes was out there instead of uh, AI. Yeah, definitely. Another guy I want to talk about, too, is Draymond Green kind of had a good game going. Um, I thought his presence on the glass was big late. Uh, pretty much quarters one through four, or one through three, it was a beatdown on the glass. Uh, they had, uh, I want to say, 12 offensive boards in the first three, first half or something. And But Draymond got big on the glass, finished with 12 boards. Uh, really good presence around the rim. Uh, I, I like what he did. What do you think about him going into tonight? Well, you know, I think Green was in somewhat of a funk in the middle of this series, and even he himself said he wasn't playing like up to his own standards or the game that he usually played. Maybe he got inside his own head a little bit because you know he's so good at getting inside of other guys' heads. I think now he's found a little bit uh, of a comfort zone, for lack of a better phrase. You know, he knows what he needs to do. This team needs his intensity, like he wrote in his uh, undefeated diary on uh, on ESPN there, that this is going to be the biggest game, you know, the toughest game they've ever played, the toughest game he's ever played. Uh, I expect Draymond to be, you know, the ultimate X, X factor, as he's been, you know, not just this season, but really over the last couple of years. And anything less than what he gave in Game 6 is probably not going to be enough if Golden State wants to win, because they need the good Draymond to show up as good as Steph and Clay are. For sure. I thought low post passing has been big because uh, Curry hasn't been able to thrive in that pick and roll set with Dre. So passing from Dre, passing from Iguodala, passing from Bogut, I thought was another kind of quiet key in game six that really got guys open. And I had a, a stat I looked up yesterday that uh, I don't have it in front of me here. Let me pull it up real fast. Uh, the contested shots for Golden State was very minimal uh, um, beyond 10 feet. <coughs> Excuse me. So where is it? I can't find it. Anyways, it was like 30, like 35%. There it is. Uh, the Warriors faced contested shots on 32.1% of their shots beyond 10 feet. Thunder were 58%. So you're talking about double contested pretty much for OKC and that that's their calling card too. So you got to be careful there, but um, I think, I think that's, I think that's big. Just getting guys open. That's, that's their offense. Oh, no question. And I think that's reflected when, I mean, if you look at the game six numbers, you know, these two teams were only separated by less than a percent. When you look at their overall field goal percentage, Golden State at 41.4%, the Thunder at 42.2%. Then you kick it over to the three point line, three of 23 for the Thunder. I mean, that's 13%. That is not going to get it done. And when the Warriors are 21 of 44 from behind the arc, if you can't run the Golden State Warriors off the three-point line, the odds of you winning are not going to be very high. Yeah, you get outscored by 54 from three. It was was amazing the game was even that close. I mean, if you look at that stat alone. Yeah, that's going to be a little problematic. And again, if I'm the Thunder, I look at that, 
and say as, as, as much of a problem as that was in game six for us, we were still in control of this game until the fourth quarter. We, we almost won this game even with the Warriors being electric from downtown. So if you're looking for you know, moral victories, for lack of a better phrase, that could be one. Unfortunately, there's no time for that with the season on the line in game seven here. Definitely. And I think the big narrative coming into the playoffs was, oh, OKC sucks in the fourth quarter. And it flipped in the San Antonio series. They, I think they were like plus 50 net rating in games two through six in the fourth quarter. I mean, they were unbelievably good. But now everyone's like, oh, OKC choked, 3-2 lead at home, you know, blew it. Um, and they were, what, up seven with five minutes to go. So that narrative is back, and I freaking hate that thing, man. Golden State's really, really good. They are really, really good. I mean, we're talking about a historically good team. And when you look at, you know, the, the Thunder's ability to get other guys involved, you know, a lot of the, the term hero ball was thrown around to describe that fourth quarter for the Thunder and, and what amounted to a loss in game six. But if you look at their X factors, man, I mean, I look at a guy like Dion Waiters in game six. This is a guy who played 36 minutes. One of five from the floor, three points, four rebounds, one assist. I mean, that's a guy who when they win and when they beat the Warriors, he's going good. And when they lose and they, they get defeated by the Warriors, he's not going so good. He is their real X factor. I mean, you look at his stats and wins. He's averaging 11 points a game. He's shooting better than 50% from the floor. He's shooting 54.2% in wins. And in losses, 3.3 points, 20% shooting from the floor. Wow, Ser- nice. Serge Ibaka, same type of thing. <laughs> In wins, 14 points, 1.7 blocks, 51.4% shooting. In losses, 9.7 points, a block, and only 42.3% shooting. So, you know, for me, those two guys have to step up. They've got to have good games. Ibaka, I saw some things that I really liked from him early in that game six. He was crashing the glass. He was being a force on the inside. This is the Serge Ibaka that everybody was wondering, where is this guy? Why did I spend such a high fantasy draft pick on this guy going into the season? That's the guy that we were looking for. And then toward the end, he was drifting out more toward the three-point line again, trying to stretch the floor, wasn't as involved. That's the guy that we slammed our heads into the wall against constantly throughout the season for those of us who had Ibaka on a fantasy roster or two, wondering what has happened to this guy's game. Definitely. Uh, One stat that I... I want to get out there that Tom Haberstroh tweeted out the other day was uh, on their final 13 possessions for OKC in the last five, they had one or fewer passes on 12 of those 13. I mean, dude, uh, total hero ball, like you said, and I know uh, Chuck Barkley has been all about that. Uh, and then you mentioned Ibaka. I think I, the, the thing I'm watching the most is what do you do about that? Really, their ticket has been that small lineup with Serge at the five. Uh, and that pretty much got him through games three and four smashed on the uh, – I'm calling him the Death Slayer lineup for you guys who have watched uh, Grandma's Boy. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's something to watch too. They got they – didn't, they didn't look good. Uh, they got beat up. They were – that lineup though, Russ, Dion, Robertson, Durant, Ibaka was minus 76 net rating in five minutes. So do you think they used that lineup again even though it didn't work out uh, very well in game six or – how do you see that working out? <clears throat> what do they have any other options? Yeah. I don't I don't see Kyle Singler suddenly becoming an <laughs> X Factor in this series. Let's just put it like that. Do you think that I mean Adams Adams was big too. He had six off offensive boards. Uh, I think he's I I don't know. I it's it's tough to take Adams off the floor is kind of the point I was getting to. So yeah. I I don't know. Uh, I'd probably use that uh, the the Death Slayer lineup 
uh, probably like eight minutes, I guess. I would like to see a little bit more Andre Roberson. Obviously, he's going to have to stay out of foul trouble, but you look at his game six, I mean, 11 points, eight boards, three blocks in only 29 minutes, perfect five of five from the floor. That's the guy who we were talking about had no offense all year long, but he's picked a good time to sort of find his own and find some confidence on the offensive end and do something with it. So, you know, I'd like to see a little bit more from him as well, but again, he's got to stay on the floor in order to do that. Going back to game six, I mean, if you look at the numbers, Durant and Westbrook combined to shoot 20 of 58 in that game. They only scored 57 points. So that means they took one more shot than they had points. 34.5% between the two of them. If that happens again, the Thunder are not winning this game. Yeah, that was well. They yeah, the free throws are big too. I mean, Durant's going to the line so much now that he doesn't. I don't think he. I think his bad shooting, quote unquote, is a little overblown from what I've been seeing. But the turnovers were killer, uh, and that's pretty much live by Russ, die by Russ, and they kind of died, man. I mean, you can't turn the ball over four times in crunch time at home. Uh, it, it was just brutal. And, and it's worth noting, and it's worth noting that he had five turnovers in that game. So for four of them to come all grouped together like that right down the stretch is is especially hard. Eight of fifteen turnovers for the Thunder were between those two guys. You look at the Thunder box score; they had fourteen turnovers, only four between Curry and Thompson, and, and Curry had three of those. Yeah, that was big. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard for Clay to turn the ball over when he has the ball in his hands for about like a half a second. You know, I was talking to one of my buddies, and I said, I don't think I'd be able to pull off that shot in a video game, much less in reality. So it just speaks to really how on fire Clay was. I mean, he he yeah. took back to the NBA jam mode and, you know, <laughs> had the announcers screaming from their seats. He was so hot. Boom shakalaka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, I mean, that corner three, uh, that, that the right corner three, man, uh, I, I lost it when that ball got loose. And I was just like, every time he touched the ball – you're like, oh, he's going to – it was just – it was crazy, man. Like, the for Warriors game, are amazing. For an OKC Game 7 adjustment, if you have Andre Roberson on the floor, do you put him on Steph or do you put him on Clay? Probably got to put him on Steph, I think. Um, I mean, you, Clay's not hard to guard if you're aware. Like, if you know he's going off, just stay on him. Do not help at all. Um, and I, I thought one of the, the best – Things to kind of accentuate that point was uh, off the Iguodala steal, Westbrook was coming down, uh, and Iguodala stripped him and passed it down to Clay. Robertson was like, "Help, help, help!" He he was calling for help to get Clay, and Durant was late. Shots off, swish. I mean, it was just, and that was that was like the game. That was the game, really. Like, just get a body on Clay all the time when he's on, and even when he's off, because he could get hot at, at a moment's notice. That sounds about right to me. So another guy we want to watch out for, too, I think, is Ennis Cantor had that two-minute stretch where he looked really bad, and he probably wouldn't have really gotten back, I thought. Um, but then Steven Adams got in foul trouble. So do you think he is a factor here? We saw him. He was terrific in the Spurs series. So this time he's kind of taking a back seat, and you could really see Golden State targeting him uh, in pick and roll sets, I thought. Yeah, I think so too. But I still think that he's got to play a little bit more than the ten and a half minutes that we saw from him in Game Six. Eight points, three boards, a block. He must have known a holiday was coming up. I mean, plus fifteen in that ten and a half minutes. If you're going to play Dion Waiters thirty six minutes, uh, I think you can find a little bit more time for Cantor on the floor. Maybe when they bring in either Varishow or Zelly uh, into the game on the Golden State side would be a good time to bring Cantor in. You have to think that you know his defense is the number one concern for Billy Donovan in terms of playing time and. 
like you said, the Warriors sort of exploiting him. But at the same time, he was so good, and that lineup with Steven Adams was so good during that Spurs series. There's something to be said for playing to your strengths rather than trying to take advantage of the opposition's weakness. Yeah, and I, th- I think that the Donovan factor is going to be huge. Like, we all kill Magic Johnson for, for his tweets, but he, he had a good point. Uh, saying that Donovan needs to make some adjustments. So I think that's something to watch. Uh, I thought Cantor was really good on offense. Uh, his his rebounding has been pretty big. Uh, so, the, I mean, I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, you can't take his minutes from Adams. You can't take his minutes from Serge. So you're talking about you pretty much have to either pick Dion or Cantor. So that's going to be a huge thing to watch, and I don't know. I feel like I feel like I'd probably go Dion and go small, but um, I I think once he's out there, he's he's going to get shredded. So I'm not as bullish on on Cantor as you are. It sounds like uh, I probably would only play in like seven minutes or so. Um, I, I think you can get rebounding in other ways with Serge and Adams. I feel like it wasn't so long ago that Oklahoma City had a different coach and we're in the playoffs and we're <laughs> about these adjustments. Hmm, I wonder who that could have been. All right. Hey, he likes Otto Porter, though. Scotty Brooks, man. Uh, I, th- I think Otto Porter's going to be good. Kind of a quick subject change. I feel like Otto Porter's going to kind of have a big season. I feel like I'd like to know. I'd like to get a good look at Otto Porter's MRI of his hip to know how healthy or not he is because he was excellent uh, in stretches last season, but then he fell off a cliff after the All-Star break for a little while, and there was just absolutely nothing oh there. You know, I'd like to get a good, clean MRI on Otto Porter before answering that question, but I do think you know he's the type of versatile contributor who's probably not going to stuff the stat sheet for you on any given night, especially if the Wizards uh, re-sign Bradley Beal on that max contract. But he's going to give you solid contributions across the board, and that's that's what you're looking for. We will definitely get to Beal shortly. But before we do that, let's go predictions here. Um, who you got, man? Uh, how And by how much? you think they'll cover the spread or whatever? Whatever you're feeling. Uh, you know, and a half last I checked. I still, you know, my heart wants, you know, my in my heart, I want to say that the Thunder are capable of this win. Uh, having said that, you know, to go into that environment in Oracle Arena, game seven, with everything on the line, chance to go back to the NBA Finals and play the Cavs team that you faced last year. You've got the MVP on your side. You've got the crowd on your side. You've got momentum on your side. You've got a historical season on your side. You know, there are a lot of things adding up on that Golden State column. But, hey, nobody thought that Oklahoma City was going to go in there game one and do what they did, and, and look what happened. Yeah. So you think how much how much do Golden State wins by? If Golden State wins, I mean, I think either way it's going to be a close game. So I think whoever comes out on top, we're talking about six to eight points at most. Okay, so you're, you're right with the Vegas line? Right, I'm right in that Vegas line. Yeah, I feel like Golden State's going to smash, man. I don't know. I just – it just feels like – that fourth quarter momentum is just—it's it, just sticking out so much that if Clay's hot, I feel like Clay's going to have a huge game. So I, I think OKC. Um, I think OKC goes down by like I want to say like almost fifteen twenty. Like I don't know. Oh man. wow! Yeah, I don't know. You're calling. You're calling poor, uh, blow, huh? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, Golden. It just, it just feels like a Golden State kind of night, man. Uh, I've been. Trying to think about it, like, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna be so great. There's gonna be a huge run by somebody. You're in that golden state of mind, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. I'm gonna have to bump some, uh, some Nas later, I guess, with a, with the remix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, so. I think you yeah. might have to. <laughs> All right, 
so let's talk some free agents really quick. Uh, let's just hit Beal before we forget. Um, he wants Max. Do you give him Max? Who is kind of on the table to give him Max? And is it a moot point because do you think Washington gives him Max? <laughs> well, I mean, is he like, do I value him as a maximum player? Yeah. Okay. No. But, here, but here's the thing about the NBA is the talent outweighs the, the demand for talent outweighs its supply, right? So that's why we every year, every offseason, we say, how did player X get paid this amount of money? That seems absurd, right? I mean, every year we have at least one or two guys like that. Asher. <laughs> exactly. Beal's going to be one in that category for me. I mean, he's definitely one of, if not the most interesting free agent this summer. Um, if the Wizards were to let Beal walk for nothing except cap space – how do you replace him? There's no guarantee that anybody uh, equally or more talented comes over. Your roster could very much be worse than it is currently. It seems that he and John Wall are trying to develop some chemistry if they can just stay on the floor together. Uh, if you have Beal, Wall, Porter in place, you know, you've got a nice one, two, three to start with. I know the Wizards have said they're committed to Gortat long term, but, you know, we'll see about that. Um, I'm on the side of my life is better with him than without him if I'm in the Wizards front office. And if that means overpaying for him, uh, that means I have to overpay for him. Having said that, you know, even if the Wizards say, hey, we don't think you're a max player, so we're going to give you $17, $18 million a year, you know in restricted free agency there will be at least one team willing to go the full max on Beal, given his age, given his potential, hoping that they can solve that recurring leg injury. So all it takes is one team to think he's worth the max to force the Wizards into an uncomfortable decision. Yeah, I think the the leg issue, <clears throat> if if he didn't have that leg issue, this wouldn't even be a topic. Really. Of course. Oh, Beal's getting maxed. Of but, course. But, that I mean, every single year we see Beal go out with this freaking tibia thing, man. And he, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I think he's going to get max. And I think he's really good, man. I, I think he's right on the brink of being uh, right behind Clay as, you know, in that second group of best shooting guards. Uh, and he has he's a he has a good skill set, man. He can pass, uh, pretty solid defender on the wing. Um, that again, it, it, he's a great player. He's really young. And he's got a, he's got a great skill set, and you know, like you said, he's real young. Beal doesn't even turn twenty three until June twenty eighth. Okay, so you're talking about a player who's going to be 23, 24, 25, 26 on these next several years of this deal. This guy is just starting to enter his prime. He hasn't reached anything close to his potential. And again, it's all about that leg injury for me because if it weren't there, like you said, this wouldn't even be a topic. But given that it's recurred time and time again, they can't find the cure. Beal talked about earlier this season being on a minutes limit of some kind for the rest of his career. You know, you have to take all those things into consideration. But at the end of the day, my life in the, as, as the Wizards fake GM for these next five minutes, my life is a lot easier with Beal than without him. For sure. And like you said, getting a guy's contract right before his prime or on, on his prime is huge. Like, uh, obviously, the worst one, I thought, and I'm sure you'll agree, is Amari Stoudemire. When you max him past his prime, plus... The way the CBA works, the longer you're in the league, the higher your max. So, like, that, I mean, that, that contract was so bad. And he was okay for the Heat this season, but last year, the last year of his – what, he was, like, the third or fourth highest paid player last season with the Knicks or something like that. And, yeah, dude, that, that was a terrible, terrible move. Awful. 
<clears throat> okay, so let's get to Raptors real quick. Um, we talked a little bit about Bismack here. He has been uh, one of the darlings, I guess. Him, Adams, and Dion, who have cooled off lately. Um, OKC narrative. <laughs> so Bismack made himself some money. He is obviously going to opt out of the last year of his deal, so he'll be a, a free agent. Who do you see um, coming after him? And I saw Zach Lowe said $17 millions on the table Ugh, for mm-hmm. a guy who can't shoot uh, or really do anything except protect the rim, which is a good skill, obviously. But um, what do you think for Biz? Uh, we Before we got on, we were thinking like 10, 12, which, which sounds about right. What do you think? That sounds about right to me. I mean, like like we talked about, you know, I could see a, a real desperate team going as high as 14, maybe even 15 million annually. Uh, I'm comfortable right at that 10 to 12 million dollar range, given the new cap, given his skill set and the uh, strengths and weaknesses that are included within that. A team like Boston, you know, they've been looking for a rim protector, what seems like forever, could certainly make a lot of sense. The Los Angeles Lakers, you know, if they lose out on guys like like a Hassan Whiteside, even maybe a Festus Cizelli is out of their range. I think they could take a look at Bismack Biombo. Uh, I don't think he was going to go anywhere with the idea of being a backup if he was going to leave Toronto. I think he probably w- would want to start or expect to start regardless of what he says. Uh, you know, Dallas is an option. It's not like they're exactly locked and loaded at the center position. I mean, he's going to have plenty of options. It's just a matter of how comfortable do you feel paying a player who has a clearly limited skill set and has only shown us really uh, during this really short period of time when Jonas Valanciunas has been out this season, whether it was during the regular season or whether it was during the playoffs, what he's capable of doing. You know, if he had a even an 82-game sample size in his back pocket to work from, maybe there would be more teams interested or comfortable. But we're talking about a pretty limited sample size for a guy most people were writing off as a bust before he got to Toronto. Charlotte. Charlotte wrote him off as a bust. <laughs> They'd like to have him back right about now, I think. Yeah, man. That was uh, one of the... Probably that and Ashik were like the two biggest uh oh mistakes of the season. Um, yeah, I'm I'm I pretty much agree with everything you said. Um, Dallas, I think, is definitely going to be in the mix there. Uh, Zaza is not the answer. We really saw him run out of gas. Uh, yeah, we like Salah Mejri, blah 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 blah. But they definitely want a rim protector uh, behind Dirk, behind guards who can't guard very well. Uh, I think Milwaukee would be interesting if they decided to uh, move on from the Moose, Greg Monroe, in a trade this offseason. Yeah. Milwaukee, with all their length at every position, that would certainly be an interesting fit. Yeah, Milwaukee's uh, a very curious team for me. Uh, I think they're one of the top three teams for, like, what are you guys going to do this offseason? Right, um, with exactly. Their length, with, I mean, you're looking at – we talked about this, too, um, I want to say, like, a week ago, where, what, Bayless, uh, pretty much everyone except Rashard Vaughn is – uh, uh, is a free agent uh, on the wing, so uh, and Bayless played some point guard as well. So that that they have to get a wing. I want to see where they play Middleton, and obviously the Giannis Antetokounmpo PG thing is crazy. I mean, he was so good. So uh, I, I want to see what they do. Do you, you think they can go after Biz? And uh, do you think they do you think they shake up with Monroe? I think if there's a deal on the table that they think for sure makes their team better. Uh, I don't think they'll have any hesitation in exploring it, but I don't think they're entering the offseason saying we must trade Greg Monroe or death. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I think when you look at Milwaukee, they're going to have to try and find ways to improve. Um, their interior defense probably could be improved if they got a legitimate rim protector in there. 
for whatever reason, John Henson just does not get the consistent minutes that so many of us wish that he did in Milwaukee. Uh, but if you could trade Greg Monroe to a team that's looking for that kind of player, get some other pieces back in return and open yourselves up a nice little role for, for Bismack Biombo or a similar player like that, you know, I think Milwaukee would, would make a lot of sense. You know, for me, my ultimate fantasy always had somehow Hassan Whiteside winding up in Milwaukee. So you could roll out a, a lineup that includes Middleton, Jabari Parker, Atena Kumpo, and Hassan Whiteside and say, good luck. Yeah. Length, man. Yeah. I, th- I think that's kind of the, the trend now is rim protector, shooters, facilitator. I mean, it's kind of been the formula, I guess. But really the emphasis is on shooting and length on defense. So that they have... One more shooter, I think. I think they're in the game, uh, but yeah, I wasn't really too high on them coming in. But uh, they they got some work to do. They, they're, like I said, one of the top three teams to to watch. Uh, so stick with the Raptors here. Demar Carroll, one of the most within reason attainable free agents, I guess. It sounds like he wants to stay with Toronto. Obviously, has the Compton roots with LA. Uh, staying going, your Lakers or what? What do you think for DeMar? Uh, I mean, I've been talking about DeMar and the Lakers all year long. You know, I think there's natural interest there in the post-Kobe Bryant era. Fits and need is a 2-3. Team needs a score. DeRozan's home is here. You know, there are a lot of things that you could line up with the Lakers and DeRozan and say, wow, why doesn't this make sense? Uh, but all signs point to him remaining with the Raptors. I mean, it's where he wants to be. I think he takes a lot of pride in being with one franchise for for his entire career if he's able to do that. Uh, But it's always going to come down to a question of money, right? And Masai Ujiri said today in his end-of-season press conference, he said, you know, that's a question for later when he was asked about DeRozan's max contract. So some people are going to take it as a slap in the face. Some people are going to interpret it in, in different ways. But the reality is the Raptors, just there's no need for them to paint themselves into a corner and say, yes, we're for sure definitively giving DeRozan the max or saying, no, we're not going to because there's no real benefit either way there, right? So there is going to be at least one team that will offer DeRozan the max, and that's all it takes, you know, not unlike Beal or anybody else. That's all it takes for the Raptors to really make a hard call. But I, I would be surprised if DeRozan left, and if he did, it's going to come down to money. Yep. He gets that one extra year with Toronto if, if Toronto wants to max him. But, I mean, he's 26, so. It's crazy to me, and, and you know, I think Brian Colangelo probably deserves a few apologies. Uh, <laughs> when he signed DeRozan to that extension way back when, I believe it was four years, about $40 million, he yep. caught a lot of criticism for that. A lot of people were very, very unhappy with that. And look, we're talking about this guy as a near $30 million a year player now, so uh, I think Colangelo might have been onto something there. Yeah, I'll admit I was. Uh, I'm anti DeRozan, man. Uh, I I don't like wings who can't shoot the three. And as great as he is, he's still not that efficient. And going to the free throw line has helped him. But like you said, every everything uh, you said, I agree with. Um, he's going to get max. Um, and I think it's it's the Lakers or Toronto. With Toronto, probably is about a seventy percent favorite. I, I, I'd be pretty surprised <coughs> if he doesn't head there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so we have uh, the Mike D'Antoni stuff uh, with Dwight. Dwight's a goner, right? Uh, I would have to think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought he was a goner even before you know the D'Antoni mix was introduced uh, into, into this volatile equation that Houston has sort of concocted here. But, I mean, you read the comments from that interview he did with Jackie McMullen, the Q&A, 
where he went to Daryl Morey and said, you know, uh, not, me not being involved makes me feel like I'm taken out of the game. I'd like to be more involved. And Daryl said, well, we don't want you to be more involved, you know. As a human being, forget as a basketball player, professional athlete, but as a human being, how is that supposed to make you feel? Do you feel wanted in that situation? Do you feel like you're being appreciated to the most of your abilities? Probably not. And I know a lot of people are going to be tired of hearing that with Dwight Howard. But at the same time, like in this particular scenario, I think it makes a lot of sense for him to try and move on and find you know greater pastures. And you know, I have a buddy who told me several years ago, this is uh, prior to the Lakers ever dealing for Dwight Howard, but it was when the rumors started coming up and he said, you know, I think Dwight Howard is going to be one of those players who's individually a really, really good, potentially great player. Personally, I'll go with really good. So he's going to be one of those really good players who just never really finds his fit. He's going to bounce around from team to team. He's going to play for three, four, maybe even five teams or more. He's going to be individually good, but he'll never be seen as great because he doesn't win anywhere and because he can't stay as a part of anywhere consistently. That Dwight Howard trade, man, is one of the craziest uh I mean, with the with the Bynum side, it's just. I mean, you look you look you look at that for the two for two of the biggest players involved in in uh, in Philadelphia uh, and and Lakers. I mean, Bynum was a grand failure in Philadelphia. Dwight was more or less, you know, I mean, he was one and done with the Lakers. He had some good moments, but was pretty much a disappointment. Uh, Philadelphia also dealt away Vucevic in that deal, correct? Yep, and Harkless. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you look at it, and there were a lot of things that did not work out about that deal. So I mean, it could have been, you know, on paper the biggest four-team trade in in NBA, you know, in recent memory. But at the same time, you know, it's it's only memorable uh, for the right reasons if it works, and obviously that one did not for those two teams. Yeah, Iguodala in that deal. I mean, that that, and this is people forget this man. That deal ruined the Sixers. Not Sam Hinkie. Not whoever. That deal is why Sam Hinkie did what he did, uh, and his little letter that he wrote kind of had a little backhanded, hey, I didn't make this move. You put me in this position. I did this, and I don't hate Sam Hinkie. <clears throat> Quick take on the Sixers, I guess, while we're here. Um, they are reportedly looking to deal Jaleel Okafor or Nerwin's Noel. What do you think about that? Who do you think is more likely to move? Uh, Embiid, not likely for Summer League, but sounds like he's good to go for opening day. Thank goodness, man. <laughs> let's, let's see this guy in the court. So who do you think is dealt and possible candidates? I, I, I hope Embiid is ready to play. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued with this guy like anybody else, but I'll believe he's ready to go when he's in the starting lineup on opening night and not a second before then. Uh, as far as Noel and Okafor, I think it would be a mistake if, if you did not build around Noel, given his defensive prowess, what he's capable of doing at the center position. Uh, Okafor is obviously a very skilled big man. He's, some of the things he did on the offensive end of the floor were absolutely terrific. But you look at the Sixers roster, you've got Embiid, you've got Noel, you've got Dario Saric coming over now. I mean, there's just too many big bodies and not enough space for him. So if you could deal Jaleel Okafor to a team like the Boston Celtics, which I think those two teams just match up fantastically for that exact trade. But if you look at Jaleel Okafor on the Boston Celtics and the type of return the Sixers could get, more picks. I know everybody's excited about that in Philadelphia. Uh, but if you look at that, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. And if I were making the calls... I'd be floating Okafor a lot harder than I'd be floating Noel. And if I were to trade Nerlens, it was going to be, I mean, it would have to be a deal that I'm unquestionably going to win this deal. Like, there's not even a second glance involved. I thought Marcus Smart would be a good kind of main ship to throw in that deal. Uh, I think he'd be a good fit with Brett Brown's system, kind of run the offense a little bit, very Ish Smith like, more defensive. I think he's kind of a Brett Brown kind of guy. 
So I think that pick and what, the 18th pick, I think that's a good starting point for Okafor. Um, and like you said, I think Okafor has a little bit less value um, you know, to other teams, but I think Philly sees that contract being a couple years later um, due for an extension. So maybe Noel, but like you said, Noel is, he's, I think to other teams, Noel has more value because he's, um, very good rim protector. He's really improved on pick and rolls with Ish. Uh, we kind of saw a new side of him, really, when Ish got there. Uh, down, he had a decent point guard to run with. So, right. uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, with everything you said. And what do you think about? Do you think you with me with Marcus Smart? You think that's a good kind of starting point? Yeah, I like it. I think there were. I think uh, when the two teams were actually may or may not have had some discussions around the trade deadline. I know Smart's name was floating around. You know, I think previously uh, you could have talked about. Uh, like if this were last year at this time uh, or a little bit later last year, but after the draft. So once we knew the Sixers had Okafor on the roster, if you had talked about Avery Bradley potentially being part of that deal, I think it would have been a little bit more palatable. But at this point, I think he's very much proven his worth. And, you know, on an $8 million salary, he's an absolute bargain. <laughs> so I don't think he's going to be a part of any discussions. But Marcus Smart, you know, a pick. Uh, maybe we talk about, you know, a, a draft and stash guy being a part of it in some form. I mean, I think that's it, – it makes sense for both teams, right? The Sixers need need help in the backcourt. The Celtics need help in the frontcourt. Uh, and the Celtics, if they were able to get a real solid big man like Okafor who could score the basket – or who could score the basketball and then they could use a player like Amir Johnson to focus just on uh, protecting the rim, I think that would be a good good setup for their team moving forward. Yeah, he'd be a nice fit with Isaiah, I think, too, with the way Isaiah really attacks the basket and kind of kick it to him when – uh, when he gets doubled and stuff, so that'd be something to watch. All right, so most important topic: uh, Are you DVRing the Mets game, or do you have it on pause, or, or what are you doing with the Mets game right now? Because uh, <laughs> I have it paused, but I'm looking at the score right now, and I like what I see. Uh, I do not have it on pause. I have it on mute, uh, <laughs> watching it right in front of my eyes. Because you know, multitasking is <laughs> what we do uh, on the Roto World family. How else can we crank out all that information at once? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it looks like. Best best start of the season for Harvey so far, and you know you got to hope he gets back on track because as good as the Mets pitching is, it's uh, that depth and quality of the rotation is severely compromised if Matt Harvey is not Matt Harvey. Yeah, he, oh, he looks great, man. Uh, six innings, six strikeouts, one hit, no walks. I love the no walks, man. That's big. I mean, he's as much as he was having problems with his velocity. You know, it was really the command that was all over the place and. You know, today he seems to be uh, getting back to that uh, more familiar mechanical delivery. Seems to be a little bit more de- uh, deliberate in his approach, like almost like he was working off of a mental checklist as he goes through the steps to wind up and pitch the ball. But the control has been good, the velocity has been good, the composure has been good. You know, those are all very, very encouraging signs. But you know, I, at this point, I need to see it from Harvey not once, not twice, but a handful of times before I really believe that okay, perhaps the old Matt Harvey is back because. We've seen a couple flashes this year, and then he goes right back, right back down the toilet. So we can't afford that if that's going to be the case moving forward. Definitely need some dark night to be good in our lives. All right. So anything else you got in your mind? Anything you got cooking uh, for the site? Uh, I mean, I'm excited for the draft. I mean, that's that's the next big big thing after the finals. Obviously, once we find out who LeBron and Co are going to be playing, we're all going to be jazzed up for the finals. But that's that first off-season event is, is the NBA draft, and it's going to come quickly after the finals conclude. And I think this is one of those years where we see a lot of draft day and night activity. I mean, multiple trades. You know, I think back to the uh, 
draft year when we saw Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett go to the Brooklyn Nets, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like that kind of night could be in could be in the mix because you've got a few teams who really control the draft board, and those teams are all looking to land a superstar and. I think there could be some fireworks uh, just before the 4th of July. So you think the Celtics are going to be active then? I think the Celtics are going to be looking. I think a team like Denver is going to be looking. Yeah. I mean, I think even a, team, even a team like Toronto took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, I knew where you were going. It's going to be looking. So, you know, all those teams with multiple picks who have, you know, maybe just one or two clear holes to fill and they've got a surplus at a certain position or two, I, I think it would make a lot of sense for those teams to step up on draft night because – Every team this summer is going to have cap space with the cap spike. It's not the competitive advantage so many have made it out to be in prior years. So I think the draft is if you're going to strike, the time is during the draft. Yeah, very haves and have-nots with players that are uh, – or teams that just don't – like the Nets, man. They are the ultimate have-not. They have nothing. So they need picks and so- – uh, not have not having that pick this year is so bad. I mean, and, and speaking of the Nets, you know we uh, we talked about it before, but we should mention it now too. Is if the Raptors come calling and say, "Hey, what do you want for Thaddeus Young? Can I dangle a first round pick, maybe a second round pick uh, along with it in exchange for Thad Young? We'll pay his contract." I know Sean Marks has said he doesn't want to trade Brook Lopez, doesn't want to trade Thad Young, but he's got to start restocking the cupboard in some form, and uh, that's got to be at least a starting point for him to listen to. Have to do it. They have nothing to play. I mean, it'd be foolish not to trade whoever you can to work on 2020, really, because <laughs> 2017 is you're not building a championship around Brooke Lopez and Thaddeus Young, and I like both of those players, but you're not building a title team around those two. Yeah, and yeah, they're they're great twos and threes, not ones and twos. Correct. So even threes and fours, uh, pretty much for that. I think Brooke's a solid second best player to have. Definitely a max kind of player, but uh, yeah, they're they're and with the lack of picks is that. Oh, I'm a Nets fan. That that trade is so bad. That and Bargnani are the two, like, what the hell are you doing? Picks? That, 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 re- that reaction you just had when you talk about <laughs> no picks and you go, ah, that's the reaction <laughs> of every Brooklyn Nets fan every time I talk about the draft. It's just like, thanks, Billy King. Appreciate that. Seriously. Uh, you know? That guy is not good with trades, man. I don't I don't know how he even got a job, but uh, under a lot of pressure from ownership to make something happen right. faster than it than it should have. But you know, at the same time, if you don't feel that you're the man uh, who wants to take responsibility for it, then perhaps that's not the job for you. All right, man. So, uh, holy crap, this is a longer pod than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, right. I know. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully, nothing. Uh, my phone hasn't been buzzing, so nothing really happened. Uh, so we're out of here on that. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Ethan, and we'll catch you guys next time. Go Game 7, baby. No doubt. Let's get it. Let's get it in. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. 
Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.